0: The Start On Demand. On demand. Hey, it's GMAC for a vacationing Brett McGarry and Loren McNabb. Thanks for downloading, sharing and subscribing to the start on demand. Let's get right down to business. this morning and heard something like this. BC has officially pushed back the start of the school year for students.
1: BC has officially pushed back the start of the school year for students. So they were supposed to go back to school, Greg, same date as Manitobans, September 8th. They're now hitting pause on that plan. Staff Will return to school September 8th in BC, but students will not. So, BC recorded 46 new cases of COVID 19 yesterday, but it doesn't sound like this change in school plans is about those numbers as much as it is about the time they feel that the school needs to prepare for this fall.
2: BC has officially pushed back the start of the school
0: year for students. The goal is to get staff, teachers, and administrators together to understand federal health guidelines. A health and safety group will also work on a mask policy for schools. How long the school year start will be delayed remains unclear.
2: Starting up school safely in a pandemic year requires some additional uh, scheduling logistical concerns and, and operations. So really the idea is to get uh, staff back together, whether it's uh, support staff, uh, teachers and administrators, uh, to uh, finalize how the school operations are
3: going to work.
0: So the voice you heard there is BC's Education Minister, Rob Fleming. They have not said when students will be going back, but have told people in that province they will have more details in the next week. That change in plans has us wondering this morning whether you're worried something similar could happen here in Manitoba.
1: And I think the answer would be yes. I think there's parents who've probably decided, Greg, that they might not be sending their kids back just based on their own concerns with COVID-19, or they might have kids with um, conditions that they're worried about, or they might just be saying... I don't need to rush this. And then on the other hand, there are parents, and I would fall in this category, that would like to see the school year return as long as there's safe uh, and appropriate guidelines for school. And so I'm anxious to know that that is happening. If the numbers change, I get it, the plans could change, but I think there's a lot of people this morning who might be thinking, is that September 8th date going to come through? So that's what's going on in BC. Again, here at home, many unknowns. We don't know yet what we're going to do about masks. Ottawa said that they're going to recommend them for kids... And over. So that would be your boys. That's right. Have they expressed any questions about no, masks at all? No,
0: Brendan was at a class last night. Uh, he's doing a dog obedience school oh, cool. with her uh, newest dog. And so th- it wasn't even mandatory, but he decided he was going to wear it throughout the entire class. So, and kids are more open to that stuff, I think, than we give them credit for, especially once they get to a certain age. They, you know, they, they like to comply with rules as much as sometimes it feels as though they like to push back against yeah. them.
1: Yeah, there's the age that I think that kids will be okay with it. And then there's that line where if you're just a bit too young, depending on where it falls, it'll be harder for the younger ones maybe to keep that on. Kind of like keeping their mittens on, right? right? Like,
0: <laughs> I think it's more of a concern about the fidgeting and that it might, in fact, do more harm than good because their hands will be closer to their eyes and their nose and their face than, it, than they would otherwise be Fidgeting and, and fussing around with the mask.
1: So as we know, we talked about masks. Still not clear what Manitoba may or may not mandate. It might just be a recommendation thing along the way. We don't know. We don't know what they're going to do with the recommendation that schools are being encouraged by Public Health Canada to have better ventilation systems as well as to keep their windows open, which is pretty much only good in Manitoba until what? <laughs> Thanksgiving? Like some- <laughs> Based on last year, yes. Yeah, so there's questions there. And then there's the other question about how we keep... Some sort of normalcy for our kids, balancing that with their health. So, Dr. Isaac Bogoch is an infectious disease specialist out of Ontario, and he had this to say to our national network about what research has shown so far when it comes to kids and COVID nineteen.
3: Heard some conflicting things in, in uh, from scientific uh, results that are that are portrayed in the media, but I think if parents real parents should really understand a few high level points. The first is that anyone from any age group can get this infection. It doesn't matter if you're zero to 100, you can get this infection. So children, of course, can get this infection. The second point is that children can transmit this infection. They absolutely can. Now, what's debated is the efficiency to which children can transmit this infection. We've seen some people say they're less effective at transmitting, and other people say they're as effective at transmitting it compared to adults. We can put an asterisk beside that because it's not entirely clear, but they certainly can transmit the infection. The third point is that if children do get this infection, the vast majority of them will do just fine. The vast majority of children that get this infection will have a mild course of illness. Many won't even show symptoms. Many will have a very mild course of illness. And and most, in fact, the vast majority of them will have a, a, a rapid and full recovery, of course there are always rare circumstances where some children just have a severe infection. We've heard about them. It's possible. It's just less likely. So I think people need to keep those in mind.
1: Lost to consider. That was Dr. Isaac Bogoch, an infectious disease specialist. Text in from Adam just now. He writes, how did school staff not have enough time in BC? They've been without children since March. And if they're going to say, oh, well, we're busy doing online learning, that's fine. You've had two months over the summer to prepare for this. I don't, Believe the decision in BC is about the curriculum or preparing for the school year. It's about spacing desks, the changing rules. You know, every day we're learning something more. You had ventilation questions raised. Do we, do we have the time or the money to fix some of the problems that might exist in school? If you have class sizes, my kid's class size last year was 29 kids. That's, that's large. How do you move those desks around? So I don't, I don't think it's fair to say this is a problem with the teachers not being prepared or the staff. It's because the rules are shifting. So it's like, okay, do we have masks? Do we have the proper desks, the spacing? What about sports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera?
2: Well,
0: I would say if you've ever built a house or done renovations where there's a blueprint involved, you know that once you start putting these things in place in practicality, in reality, you realize that adjustments need to be made. Oh, I didn't know that switch was going to be there. It's in, it sounds like minor stuff, but I think that's what they're encountering now. They're realizing that it's one thing to have a plan on paper. They're trying to implement this physically, Mm -hmm. trying to, as you say, space out desk, boy, on the blueprint, it looked manageable. It looked as though we could do this. We really need more space, which may involve either taking over a gym or maybe going to that model that we've heard suggested in the past. The idea of maybe the high school kids are going to be home And the elementary and middle school years might have to take over high schools. That's what's happening in in some places in the United States. This is sort of mixed. The hallway
1: question. Are you gonna put an arrow or the channel? Oh my gosh, we didn't think
0: about that or you know, you see it in action didn't really see it coming. So as long as officials are showing and proving themselves to be nimble and reacting to changes, because this is changing all the time, by the week, by the day in some circumstances. Like we saw in Brandon, the province opening very quickly a second testing center in Brandon for COVID-19. As long as I'm seeing things like that, I'm comfortable with following the plan. As long as those leaders are proving themselves to be open to changing things based on reality, I'm cool. (laughs) Oh, your text messages already have us giggling and uh, laughing at 780 Loren, which one's jumping out for you right now?
1: Oh, I like this one. Uh, listener text to say, my sister-in-law named their chihuahua Ask Him. As in, someone asks, what's your dog's name? Ask Him. That's a long play for a dad I like joke. It. I like it. I like that dad joke immensely. Speaking of dad jokes, our friend David Robertson, you know, the author, yes. tweeted yesterday that he had his kid's buddy come over who said his name was Miles, M-I-L-E-S. And David responded, oh, you're in Canada now. We're going to have to call you Kalamazoo.
0: Oh, boy, you would like that. I saw David's <laughs> post, too. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb. We've got Jeffrey Forche, Jeff Braun, and Kelly Moore here. Kelly, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter or the other day. It was a sign, one of those inspirational signs that are uh, more often used as advertisements at businesses. And uh, this is what it said. Having a dog named Shark at the beach was a big <laughs> mistake.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's awesome. Oh. <laughs> What 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 do you where do you fall on the uh, dog name cat name thing? Uh, this whole trend towards naming animals after people have you noticed this?
5: Well, I maybe a little bit, but not really until you guys uh, mentioned what we were going to be talking about this morning. Uh, I know our latest pet; she's uh, a little kitten named Helen which is kind of a weird name for a cat, but uh, because my wife and I couldn't do anything for our 40th anniversary, we decided to uh, add a little furball to our family, and we came up with the name because the day we were married, Mount St. Helens blew. So. Uh.
1: Oh, look at yeah. you,
5: you little romantic you. <laughs> no, no, it was my wife that had this idea. I oh, had wow. nothing to do with it, trust me. But uh, I'll tell you what, this little kitty has brought great joy into our lives, and she has a personality, and I've already given her a nickname of Hell on Wheels because she <laughs> is just... She's bizarre, but absolutely lovable.
0: The master of the nickname Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun. Uh, your relationship with animals, domesticated or otherwise, is tenuous at best. Yeah. Uh, what's your uh, latest relationship with dogs?
2: Because you have a dog in your life now, don't you? My girlfriend has a dog, Luna, a cocker spaniel. I love her to death, and I actually had her for over at my house for a couple of days last week. And uh i yeah i was surprised that i enjoyed the company of a dog that much i'd as far as names go i always thought that if i did get a pet and had the chance to name it myself i'd name a dog lloyd just so i could say his dog's name was lloyd braun who of course was a character <laughs> on seinfeld that i enjoyed very much that's dedication and, and, to
0: your first love of television uh, there exactly
2: Well, and uh, Lloyd Braun on Seinfeld is named after a real-life guy. He was Larry David's lawyer at the time. He went on to run the ABC network for a while, and he came up with the idea for the show Lost, and he uh, championed Lost. He got Lost made before Lost aired. He got fired because the pilot for Lost cost too much, so they canned him, but it went on to be a big hit, Hmm. and the show producers showed their gratitude to him by the voice at the beginning of every episode of Lost that says... Previously on Lost, that's the real-life Lloyd Braun.
1: Oh, wow. Look where Great this story, story took story. us. That's awesome.
2: So he, he's one of my favorite uh, Hollywood guys. I just love the, his story. Yeah, all that stuff. So uh, I would well, name a, a dog, dog and Lloyd and Braun. I, yeah.
1: <laughs> I love it. There's lots of people texting in about the the human names, the people names they give their animals. But you know, guys, I also love a pun. And Herb texted to say, good morning, CJOB. We had a budgie named Bird Reynolds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i love
6: that Forche, oh, that's did
0: you, great that is great oh. fortune did you see this text uh, good morning this is ray we named our dog sarah jessica barker oh that's a oh. good one i got nothing compared to these like nothing
1: at all i i did have a buddy who did have a bearded dragon and called it puff as in like Puff <laughs> the magic dragon <laughs> so besides that like these like, i got no good ones
2: that's okay. Our listeners are Do you taking have a dog, Jeff? Do you do you shower with your dog and wash him up while you wash washing yourselves? Yeah,
5: his name no. was Jerky. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I live alone. I live alone. Uh, we'll have to get you a little turtle. Well, Jeff
1: told it Braun told us a story and Forte just got sad there. Oh no, no. no. I live alone. I eat beef jerky no. in the shower. Okay.
7: That's, that's how lonely I am.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Woe is me, Jeff, free Forte. We have a turtle named Cricket, one of our listeners says, and Gary the Irish wolfhound. And I yeah the this whole idea of Kevin and Jason and Jim and and uh, our friends has got a dog they named it Paul I just uh, what about you McNabb before we run here
1: one of the favorite names I ever heard I always thought we'd call a dog like Jason or Ray or Art or something like that but I had uh, friends or friends of friends that got a dog and their little girl was I think three and she got to name the dog and she decided to call him Slippery because whenever she'd go to grab him he'd slip out of her hands and I thought that was the cutest dog name. That's adorable. Keep
0: your pet names coming, unique and otherwise we love the puns, in particular Loren McNabb.
1: (laughs) Eve's cat name is named Goat. He calls his cat Goat. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I, don't know why that makes
8: me laugh. I had a dog like, named uh.
0: Skilo, which is just Greek for dog. very, very unimaginative. Want to talk about COVID nineteen and Brandon, the epicenter of uh, what can only be described as an outbreak in Western Manitoba, Lauren?
1: Yeah, Global News Morning Reporter Abigail Turner has been in Brandon for the past couple of days. Just joining us now from my—I just saw you on TV, Abigail. It looks like you're outside the Keystone Center.
8: Yeah, that's correct. At this new COVID nineteen testing site that uh, is set to open at eight forty-five a.m. this morning.
1: You talked yesterday about the idea that people were in line really, really early. Are you seeing that again today?
8: You know what? I just left the town centre where the first, the original uh, COVID-19 test site is in Brandon. And one person already there. So that was probably around 6.30. And I rolled down my window and said, you knew about this. You knew the lines. You came prepared. And he said, I saw it yesterday and on Monday. And I didn't want to wait that long.
0: You've got to be encouraged, at least I am, Abigail, and and maybe you can give me a sense of what the feeling is in Brandon. Obviously, there's concern, but people are acting on this and are getting in line to be tested. Uh, You shared with us uh, the various reasons why yesterday, but what's the overall feeling in Brandon with regard to what's happening in that community?
8: You know what, I actually stopped and got gas yesterday, Greg, and a gentleman was there, he had a a face mask on, and he was chatting with me and you know asking why I'm here talking about the situation and he said it quite simply you know we've let our guard down we became a little bit too uh reluctant um and now it's time to get back to practicing uh hand washing social distancing and you know that's good to hear that people are, are feeling that way here in Brandon because I think that's that's kind of what happened here people fell off the bandwagon a little bit
1: yeah, and you hear that in other communities, and and you know it's maybe a cautionary tale for the rest of us as we wait to go forward with this and think about what we need to be doing or what we haven't been doing and all the rest. Abigail, there's the mood that's in the community. I'm wondering what sort of questions have been raised. We know Manitoba's Premier Brian Pallister is going to be in Brandon, scheduled to speak around one o'clock. It's just under the umbrella of restart Manitoba, and it could have anything to do with economic plans to so just the fact that they've put out billboards and social media uh, platforms and advertisements on the whole idea of gaining the economy going again. What kind of questions though are you hearing from people in Brandon about what they'd like to hear from officials in terms of what's next in particular for that city?
8: You know what I think there's a lot of questions surrounding the use of face masks right now and whether or not they should be mandated uh in certain buildings. I know that lots of businesses have taken it upon themselves to say when you come in, you have to wear a face mask, but I think lots of folks are raising the question Why don't we make that province wide for businesses that are indoors? I think lots of folks are wondering if uh, the premier will make some type of uh, rule for that. Um, But yeah, that's not mandated. That's up to uh, specific businesses themselves.
0: And of course, uh, Walmart, uh, their nationwide uh, requirement for customers to wear face masks goes into place today. In fact, uh, a lot of Walmart stores uh, already open this morning. So uh, maybe one other thing for you to, to check out while you're in Brandon. Uh, when you uh, when you look around, uh, Abigail, uh, what do you think uh, we'll see at the Keystone Center? Can you give us a, a description of what this uh, what this uh, testing center looks like? Is it a drive-through testing center at Keystone Center?
8: It is a drive-through, so you don't even have to get out of your vehicle. You you can stay in there. There's a uh, pylons and tape and uh, markers uh, spray painted on the ground. So they've they've got a really good system set up here. Um, it looks like it's going to be quite efficient. But again, that starts at 8:45 this morning and lasts all afternoon. So I'm expecting to see quite the lineup of cars throughout the Keystone here in Brandon.
1: All right, Global News morning reporter Abigail Turner joining us from Brandon, where that site is set to open, as you say, at 8:45. And of course, I know you're Putting in a long shift today, Abigail, to also cover the Premier's news conference at 1 p.m. So we'll look forward to hearing more on that later with Hal Anderson this afternoon. Thanks.
8: Thank you.
0: There are, of course, concerns over the immediate future for our kids, but there are also questions. And concerns about what life will be like for them years down the road, Lauren.
1: The World Economic Forum, it has estimated that or has said that some estimates show 65% of kids entering primary school today will end up in new job types that don't even exist. And so it's just one fact that was cited in an article in the Globe Mail this week that suggests we need to stop asking our kids what they want to be when they grow up. The article was written by Sinead Boval. She's a futurist and founder of Way, which is weekly advice for young entrepreneurs. And she joins us now. Good morning, Sinead.
6: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Well, I was fascinated by your article as a mom of two young kids. And I'm curious, what's your reason for why we should stop asking our kids this question?
6: Question, what do you want to do? Start to implement that social construct that career identity is static and that it's singular and that it's linear and we know for sure now that it won't be as a result of advanced technologies so moving away from that what do you want to do and more into the lane of what problems do you love to solve What do you love to work on? Who do you want to be? Reframing the question so that they're still aspirational, but they're not based on jobs of the past.
0: This is fascinating to me because we've been talking for at least a couple of years, this notion, and you cited it in your article, this idea that 65% of the jobs our kids will be doing don't even exist as we speak at this very moment. So is it the idea of speaking in broader terms and, and trying to nurture the way our children are in the world, the way they view it? How do, how do, we, how do we do our parental best to, to help them, encourage them to do something when those jobs don't yet exist?
6: Yeah, and that's a great question. And so asking them, you know, who do you want to be? Who do you want to help? And from there, maybe somebody, your child would respond, I like helping people medically or I like helping people so I can help the planet. Things like that that are a bit broader and tied to problems that we will always be solving, Um, but they allow kids to have a broader scope of where they apply themselves to that problem. And then in terms of making sure your kids are ready for careers that we can't even imagine, it's about equipping them with a core set of foundational skills that we know will be needed to be employable throughout the future and getting them excited to continuously learn new ones. Technology is just going to get smarter, which means we're going to have to upgrade our toolkit every so often. And getting kids excited for the idea that they get to keep learning and that they get to try a bunch of different things. 17 jobs over five you know, different industries. That's something to get excited about and we should be managing those expectations.
1: Yeah, that number you just threw out there, you used it in your article, 17 different jobs over five different careers. So not just different jobs, but careers we're talking about is the future, Sinead. And so when you talk about that skill set, what's on the list?
6: Yeah, so there are problem solving is going to be a really big one. Um, you know, so we have all of these great technologies. What problems are we trying to solve? How are we going to add value to people's lives? Uh, so problem-solving creative intelligence, which is something that kids are naturally endowed with, which is an imagination. How do you think of something from scratch, uh, which is what a robot can't do yet? Um, adaptability is probably the most important skill for the future of work. You know, if your company gets restructured every nine months because of automation and your team becomes more and more global and your manager maybe is a robot, being able to adapt to those situations and still thrive in the face of uncertainty, which a bunch of us are getting exposed to right now because of the pandemic, that is a key soft skill for the future of work that CEOs across the board have unanimously agreed is incredibly important.
0: The discussion and, and the combination of of work that industry is doing, along with our levels of education all the way through from elementary straight through post secondary institutions, is is critical. We've been harping so long, Sinead, on STEM right science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Are our educational organizations are there? Are they catching on to this notion? Are they keeping up to? what our kids, what our children, our young people need in order to survive and and thrive in this future economy as you see
6: it? I think we still have um, a long way to go when it comes to repositioning education to build employable uh, kids of the future. Um, So this kind of textbook Victorian style of teaching is becoming obsolete, this idea that one person stands at the front Um, and kind of dictates out to a room and and we memorize things based off of textbooks. That is building kids for the jobs of the past. We need to switch to more of an active learning, you know, learning while you're playing, asking students, you know, don't just complete the project, write down how you solved that problem. Um, So I think that we do have room to grow in the educational system. I think it's really important that we do make that transition. Um, the silver lining, you know, during this pandemic, things like virtual learning, that's going to be key in the future. We're going to be working with people all around the world if you know, offices become a thing of the past. I know that conditions aren't ideal right now for how kids are being exposed to virtual learning, but they are learning how to do it nonetheless. Um, so I think that we do have room to grow in education, um, making STEM a bit more applicable and accessible for students, and then focusing on soft skills. And philosophy, ethics, how do you program what decision an autonomous vehicle makes um, in an emergency? We need kids that have that skill set and know how to build that into a machine.
1: just want to pick up on your final point there. We have just less than a minute here, Sinead. You talked about the idea of soft skills. And when we talk about the changing future, it's it's the idea that artificial intelligence computers might replace many of the jobs that exist now. But what the computers can't replace is the emotional intelligence. And that's one of the soft skills that we need to work on. So how do we do that?
6: Absolutely. Um, and that a big portion of soft skills, especially emotional intelligence, children learn by what they see around them. They learn from their environment. So modeling empathy in the home when the child goes through something that makes them emotional, asking them to put words and describe that feeling um, and displaying that at home, allowing children to express their feelings, communicate about how they're feeling, and then problem-solving why they feel that way, what went wrong, and how did you solve it. Those are all ways that we can model empathy, um, and it's, that's very promising that you know, we don't need tons of tools to do that. It's just simple, simple behavior switches at home.
0: Sinead Bovell, futurist, I love that title, and founder of Way Weekly Advice (laughs) for Young Entrepreneurs. Uh, We would be honoured if uh, you'd be willing to be one of our regular stable, uh, part of our stable of guests here on The Start.
6: Oh, absolutely. That would be an honour. Thank you so much.
0: Mackling and McNabb with you on this Wednesday morning. We're joined now by the 34th greatest Canadian of all time, Hal Anderson. Good morning, Hal.
5: Hello, M and McGarry got a hole in one the other day. Eh? I know,
1: and then we tried to get him on the air yesterday, Hal, because we were so impressed, and he uh, he uh, stiffed us. Well, he didn't. He was golfing still, and he didn't. He missed our call. But
5: well, he's too good for you. He's well, too good for you now. He 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 nailed a hole in one. He's on Come his on. way to
1: the PGA tour, so you know, yeah. I get it. He was. In
5: the, I... He
0: said he was in the middle of a putt when he called him. Oh. He goes, "I ended up with a seven on that hole." Uh-oh. He said, "I heard my phone at my phone," and he goes, "I wonder if that's Greg and Loren trying to call me." Yeah, sure, sure enough. So yeah, we wanted to congratulate uh, Brett on the Good big, the big, the big deal, right? Because yes. it's sort of like winning the lottery, getting a hole in one.
5: Kind of. Yeah, I, I've actually been in the presence of somebody who who sunk a hole in one. Uh, which is is kind of cool because you kind of think it can't be in the hole, right? And you go, it's in the hole, and it's you know it's kind of. And I can't even imagine how exciting it would be for a guy like Brett who loves to golf. Um, uh, I gotta say, Happy Milkman Day, Greg Mackling. I still find it really impressive. Like you've done so much, right? And I know they give you a hard time on the show about all the different things you've done and cheeches and all that stuff. But it is cool that you were one of the last milkmen.
0: I was, and it was a terrific experience. I, I think maybe as I look back, it prepared me for getting up in the middle of the night for this job. Yeah.
1: Well, sure. The reason why we I often make fun of it, Hal, it's more because I thought... Like you know, in your head, the milkman—you have to go back decades for that. And so well, when this I this does go back decades. When I first heard that, I was like, "How old are you?" But yeah, it, yeah. it was existed in the more recent times than I was aware of. That's all. It,
0: it did, and it's funny because how I would deliver uh, at different times, I, I would fill in on different routes for guys. And uh, one time, my very first summer doing it, actually went to the fire station at the intersection of Osborne and stradbrook and you'd walk right into the fire hall. There'd be one guy sitting at the front and they would nod at you and you go in and put the milk right in the fridge and I had a couple of different customers where you went right into their house and did that it's just bizarre I don't know if you'd ever do that now
5: Well, and I was reading somewhere, and I'm sorry I don't have details on this, but I was reading somewhere that somebody's kind of bringing that service back again. And it's interesting. We were talking about this yesterday in the states where COVID-19 is much worse. There are people, barbers and hairstylists, that are now doing, they bring the chair right to your house, they bring the tools, and they're kind of changing the way they do things because of this pandemic. And I think services like, say, for example, having milk delivered to your home, we may see more of that going forward, depending on mm. on what happens uh, with the virus. But anyhow, I thought that was kind of interesting yesterday. Yesterday, I heard from a seamstress on my show, who says she now goes right to their home, oh, fits them for the clothing clever. at home, goes through their goes through their clothing, and helps them decide what they're going to donate and what they might be able to, you know, adjust and fix. So anyhow, it's going to be interesting to see uh going forward what this um COVID-19 thing does to all of us and and how we do business and how we live
1: well we were talking in the last hour about just the changing job futures right in terms of digital skills and where computers will take Mm -hmm. us or won't take us How, but there's gonna be some jobs like that it's almost like getting back to basics with a seamstress coming to your home you know uh, and then maybe we'll start to see doctors coming back to the house like like we would in the the old days I put that in quotes right that's fascinating
5: Who knows? Speaking of careers, I guess I've always been kind of a bad actor. I guess I should have focused more on that because... The highest paid actors list is out. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, number one again. He was number one last year. Number one again, $87.5 million. That's how much The Rock made. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It is. He's
0: so likable. He is likable. And uh, there just comes a point, Hal, where you you can't even be doing it for the money. You're just doing it because you're always getting jobs and people want to see you in those different situations and positions. And then at the end of the year, your accountant says, yeah, did you know you made the uh, top money list again? again that would right. be uh something yeah. else and and the rock is uh as charismatic an individual as there is who else is on the list
5: okay i'm glad you asked because now i joke Dwayne johnson's not a bad actor i guess but he's not a great actor right he's you a personality the, meta, though. the actor you're right a personality also on the list i was surprised at a couple of names vin diesel is in at number five he made 54 million dollars obviously that's the fast and furious franchise and you know who's in at number 9 and 10? Adam Sandler made $41 million. That That's Netflix money right there. Mm-hmm. And Jackie Chan snuck in uh, at number 10, making $40 million. I don't think I've seen a new Jackie Chan movie in a decade, but basically, he made $40 million.
1: Basically, everybody you mentioned, I feel like I haven't seen them in yeah. movies in a decade, yeah. but they're all doing things still. That's in, that's mm. wow. I cannot think.
5: I'm, I'm Googling Jackie Chan right now. Well, Rush
0: Hour, the Rush Hour movies, like Chris Tucker's not on that list. <laughs> hey, Al
5: no no but you might you might be right though some of this might be residual money right maybe they you know bought in they got they took a percentage on a movie Uh that's done really well over the years i don't know it's hard to say halloween is coming up they're already talking about halloween (laughs) costume sales you know we talk about what's struggling during the pandemic and what's doing well well apparently costume sales are actually ahead of last year at this point heading into halloween and in case you're wondering uh, the top contenders for girls include superheroes like Wonder Woman and Black Widow, and the guys, apparently, it's Star Wars characters, and superheroes, and believe it or not the tiger king is still a top costume <laughs> heading into halloween
0: we're going to be uh, uh having kind of the kids at the end of the driveway or the end of our sidewalk delivering their candy with slingshots or something how, how are how's the,
5: that gonna work right that's a good point day and, eh?
1: and i wonder how many costumes you know if masks become mandatory uh, i know outdoors is always better than indoors but you know if you i, mm-hmm. I already have a thinking about old ninja costume for the kid kids well they're good to go because their face is covered same with some of those superhero costumes do you dress up for halloween hell i know we're ages away but now i'm curious
5: um you know what i uh, several years ago when i was still doing bar gigs I was on rock radio power 97 and i was i was doing bar gigs and i had the best costume one year and after i did that and and fooled everybody i just (laughs) i can't ever top this so i just stopped so what was it you know what i did I went, I went to the green. I was on the radio on power ninety seven. I was telling everybody everybody big star coming to the Halloween party, Big star coming to the Halloween party. It was a Saturday night at the Green Briar. and everybody's it was lined up down the street like it was crazy. Who's Hal bringing, right? This was back in the crazy bar gig days. Um who's Hal bringing? Who's Hal bringing people lined up? and I came in with a dress on on and a cowboy hat, and I came in as Rita McNeil. And the crowd went crazy. It was like Rita McNeil was actually there. Like, they wouldn't have been as as excited if Rita McNeil herself had walked in. And it was crazy, and it was such a big hit, I thought, I can never top this. Uh, And so I was Rita McNeil many years ago. And uh, that uh, it will be my final Halloween costume. I'd
1: like a picture of that. If you can dig one up, send it my way. I, I
5: might be able to find one. I might be able to find one. I'll have to wait, and uh, I'll, I'll let you know if I can find one. And uh, just quickly, I'll throw this out. I find this really interesting. We are saving money. Um, April, in April, we saved 33.5% hmm. Of our income, we saved that much. Now it's gone down since 19% in June, but we're saving money for the most part. Not everybody; some people aren't working. I get it, but as a whole, we're saving money during the pandemic.
0: Fascinating stuff. More of that from one until four. Hal Anderson, thank you as always. We love our Wednesday catch-ups. We'll uh, we'll talk to you next week, friend, if not before. Bye, guys. Late last night here in Manitoba, the British Columbia government says, hey, I know you were supposed to be going back to school September 8th. For your teacher, we want to see you then. Students, we're not exactly sure when we'll be welcoming you back.
1: Yeah, the message out of BC was that the school year will start as normal for staff, but staff and parents and all the rest said they need more time to prepare. So it's not clear when students will be going back to school in BC, although the expectation it might be another few extra days, maybe another week, maybe a few weeks with that in-between period, but the message was it's not just about numbers for COVID-19, but the fact that they need to prepare desks, hallways, buses, masks. They have all sorts of questions they need to answer, and they were asking for more time. That's what's happened out of BC. Of course, the plan here, still in Manitoba, is to go back to school September 8th, but there are a number of parents, and our next guest is one of them, we have many questions about this plan. Stacey Lasnick joined us uh, last month to talk about homeschooling. She's got experience homeschooling in the general sense uh, for the past few years, not just with the COVID sense, but she was planning to send her kids back to school in September. She joins us now. Stacy, my first question, first of all, good morning, but good are, morning. You, are you still thinking about sending them September 8th?
7: Um, I am hopeful, however, skeptical as well.
1: When you hear about what BC has done and just hitting pause on that plan, what goes through your head? Um,
7: Well, I've been having a lot of discussions with other people in my, I don't know, circle. And all of us feel unsure and uncertain. So it kind of depends on what your life structure looks like, right? And whether or not you need childcare or whether or not your children could possibly be in full-time school, meaning you can work. And so, of course, some of us could just homeschool and that would be fine. We've been talking about doing a homeschool cooperative just to make sure that, I don't know, our children are getting a little bit more information from other people, not solely from their one parent. All of us have different skill levels and different subjects. So we would maybe share the teaching Make it a little bit easier for some of the working moms, some of the working dads, just making it, I don't know, a little bit more like a school without actually going to school. So my questions are around how are they going to possibly host so many children in an already over full school
0: i'm hearing from a lot of parents around north america one of my buddies in california who's a he's a substitute teacher he's been hired by a group of parents in order to keep help keep their kids on track in in early years education what would you what would you need to hear stacy for you to go yeah you know what i'm definitely sending them back
7: um Well, I would just like to know anything, to be honest. Um, I actually was talking with one of the staff members at the local school yesterday just to see if my children were actually registered. They're also taking a poll to see who's actually going to be sending their kids. So I think that they don't know how many children they're working with, so they can't set up their classrooms accordingly yet. And it's because we are all still in unknown And so how many people can answer honestly, yes, for sure, I'm sending my kids if we don't know what handwashing is going to look like. We don't know what spacing is going to look like. We don't know if masks are going to be mandatory. We don't know anything. And unfortunately, they don't have more information yet. And of course, they're working really hard, but we can't make a decision until they give us information.
1: So for you, is it about the health aspect and the component of being concerned about the virus or is it more about just needing to see the plan and then you'll make your decision?
7: Well I kind of like the idea of both like obviously Manitoba's numbers are on the rise which is not great but kind of expected we did loosen all the rules and now we're all maybe enjoying our summer more but it's of course affected that curve and then on top of that my kids only got to go to school for a month we've been homeschooling for four years and they went to school for a month right before COVID hit. And my daughter loves it and my son does not. So whether or not they go back is going to be determined by how much like regular or free school is or how like, I don't know, a cell or a cubicle or how boxed in they'll feel because going from homeschooling to working in a tiny cubicle wouldn't work well for them because, It's
0: not their normal. Stacy, how are you managing uh, this in-between time with regards to your kids? Have you got them doing, you know, you've been doing homeschooling uh, for almost all their entire career. (laughs) Now you've made this shift and, and, uh, you know, I'm just curious as how are you handling the last several months in terms of keeping your kids busy? Are you sort of prepping them now for
7: September? We haven't stopped schooling at all. Um, However, we downsize the amount of school they do. I don't love the idea of the kids being completely unstructured in the summer. My kids need it, and they're crazy without it, and that makes me crazy. So in the mornings, they normally still do a French, a German, a reading, a meditation. They play their piano, and I require that they do some type of chore. So once those items are done in their day, they then have free time. And so they're going to be used to some of the structure still, no matter what, because I I don't focus well or function well without it, neither do they.
1: Stacey, there's two, two or three or four types of sides to this. We just have 15 seconds left. There's all sorts of fear. There's fear of the unknown. We just don't know what's going to happen in the fall. There's fear of the mm-hmm. virus. And for me personally, it's really just more of the fear that school won't happen. And yeah. <laughs> that's part of the equation, too, because I need it and I and I want my kids to go back. And I'm not necessarily overly stressed about the virus as long as we do the right things. And so you must be hearing from that camp, too, that's like, oh, my gosh, no, please, let's make sure school happens.
7: Definitely. I have a few friends in that boat as well, one of whom is a teacher and her children are both in school as well.
0: Stacy, thank you so much for this and doing it on short notice, no, no less. No problem. We appreciate your insight.
7: <laughs> Happy to help.
1: there are all sorts of different studies and different estimates and some of them people might wonder, you know, where does this number come from? But there are estimates that put the idea that anywhere between a third and two thirds of the kids entering the school system now are going to find jobs and careers that don't currently exist. And we mentioned, you know, social media managers, uh, drones, ride sharing, all that kind of stuff didn't even exist 10 years ago. So the future is rapidly changing and how are we preparing for it? Janice Gare is the president and co-founder of EI Advantage, and she's based here in Winnipeg. And she joins us now to help us have this conversation because there's all sorts of questions about soft skills. Good morning, Janice. Hi, how are you? We're good. We're enjoying where this is going today because it's making us think about things that perhaps many of us haven't considered before. We know what kids should be learning in school when it comes to math and science. But there's another part of the equation and your company is called EI. So do I assume that's Emotional Intelligence? You've got it. Yes, that's correct. So walk us through what that means.
4: Sure. So uh, we started our work about five years ago, um, focusing all of our programs, on the build, building them on the foundation of emotional intelligence, which is really helping people understand how they perceive themselves, how they express themselves, how do they build relationships, make decisions, and manage stress.
0: So as we talk about digital literacy, critical thinking, emotional intelligence, it's not something that we're typically accustomed to teaching our children. How can we guide them down that road?
4: Yeah, so what you want to do is help them develop a strong sense of self-awareness. That's, that's a foundation of emotional intelligence because if we don't understand ourselves if we don't know why we feel something or what we're feeling we can't move these emotions and you know digitization has brought us a lot of great stuff but at the end of the day innovation comes from people and that comes from smart people getting around a room together talking and creating new ideas
1: the conversations that need to take place revolve around this idea that we need to start talking, I think, Janice. And, and one mm-hmm. thing that artificial intelligence and computers can't replace is that good face-to-face conversation or, or our ability just to talk. And there's been lots of concerns that we're losing that, that we're, you know, because of texting and, and voicemail. And, and even now in this COVID pandemic, the distance we've put between ourselves and other people, our, our communication skills are really, really low and our ability to read a room I know the reaction in that room it might be really low.
4: Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, even if you're looking around at the COVID uh, pandemic and the leaders that are managing it best, they're really the ones that connect well with people on the basis of empathy and compassion. They understand what, uh, what other people are feeling, uh, how to inspire them, motivate them to follow what needs to be done, and uh, it's all about reading beneath the surface, and it really enables smart decisions. So when you're looking at your children, you know, how can you encourage them to reach out to other people? And that's about maybe asking an open-ended question on text. You know, how are you feeling? Um, how are you managing and these are skills that we can learn, we can, we can learn to ask these questions.
0: The open-ended question, obviously something mm-hmm. we try to do here in our profession, sometimes more difficult to pull off with our kids these days. Uh, One-word yeah. answers are are really common because of this digital era, and i even mm-hmm. noticed with my kids, they, you know, thank you is is shortened to TY in text, and it's like, really, <laughs> IDK? I don't know. You couldn't type out I don't know, but my favourite question that I love to hear from my kids is why but I love to ask them why is are the why questions going to be as important in the future as they are now Janice
4: I I think so and I think it's it's when you're asking why it's why do you feel the way you do or why why is it what's driving that and I think those are the things we talk about getting below the surface. We see, we see people's behaviors. We see their results. We see what they do. Even on the playground, we see interactions between our children. But what we want to teach them to do is let's find out why, what's driving that, their attitudes, the beliefs, the people that you're playing with, what's important to them. And I think these are questions that we can train them to ask.
1: How do we know for good at this? Because we're talking about the next generation and our kids. But right now, as I sit here, I'm thinking your job is to also go into businesses, Janice. And we're speaking Mm -hmm. to Janice Gare of EI Advantage, based here in Winnipeg. And Janice, how do I know if I have a good EQ or not?
4: Yeah, so there are a number of assessments that can be done. So in in workplaces, uh, quite often within leadership development programs, they will use an assessment. Uh, We use one called uh, the EQI And that will give you a sense of where your emotional intelligence is based against the norm population, so against the average. And then it'll show you what's in balance and what's out of balance. And that's where you see sort of, I call them funky behaviors, right? It's about if you have someone so high in assertiveness but so low in empathy, uh, you know, what kind of behavior are they demonstrating? And maybe it's one that's not favorable. You can learn to be more empathic. And by working with people to, to bolster that skill, you're going to get better leadership.
0: I think we're going to get a lot of people pushing back on this discussion in the sense of you're still going to need plumbers, electricians, uh, people to yeah. to drywall new homes, although where those homes are built and how they're built may change. And, and we're already starting to see some technology change in that, that forefront. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've got twins, so I've got one that sort yeah. of gravitates to one style of interaction, another that gravitates towards the other style of interaction, I keep trying to tell them, look, the the difference between a guy who's going to be a good plumber is a guy that can interact with people, that people are going to be comfortable letting them into your house and let them trust you with a project that's super important to them.
4: Absolutely. And at the end of the day, if everything's working great in your life, you're good. Right. But if you're having an interaction and it's not working uh, or maybe you're not achieving all those plumbing sales that you want to achieve, what do you have to do differently? And and a lot of times people say, well, you just need to be uh, more empathic or you just need to be more assertive. Okay, well, how do you do that? Right. And I think that's what's the piece that needs to be developed. And um, it would be really great to see that starting to pick up within within our academic uh, world is that we're getting sort of these work-ready skills.
0: As so many things get commoditized, it's going to be the difference between dealing with me or dealing with you is going to be, do I like spending time with that person?
4: (laughs) That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah. But before we let you go Janice, and we'll bring you back when the book's out, but I understand there's a book in the works to help guide people through some of this stuff. Uh, when can we expect it?
4: Uh it should come out. It's going to be a digital download on Amazon and all those other great places. Uh it should be out within the next month and a half. It's called Emotional Intelligence: Your Foundation for Success.
1: All right, Janice Gare, president and co-founder of EI Advantage. Thanks for the time, Janice. We'll be having you back for sure. Thanks a lot.
0: Presumptive Democratic candidate for president Joe Biden yesterday announced that California Senator Kamala Harris would be his running mate. It was no secret, Loren, that Biden would be making his choice for vice president from a roster of highly qualified women.
1: So as you just heard in the newsroom with Jeff Braun, Harris becomes the first woman of color, first black woman, first woman of Asian descent to run for vice president. And we're going to ask a few questions this morning that kind of circle around a lot of ifs. Was there a larger, larger consideration in this pick? In some circles, it's been suggested that this choice for VP would indicate Biden's choice as a successor of sorts. People even saying if Biden wins the presidency, he will not return or run for reelection in 2024. Lots of ifs here, but we want to start first with this decision. And to help us set up the campaign ahead, we welcome Allison Keyes of CBS News. Good morning, Allison.
6: Good morning.
1: Was Harris the obvious choice here? Well, she was among the obvious choices, yes. She worked
9: with Biden's son, Beau. Uh, He liked her. They had been getting along very well. She has been a surrogate for him since having dropped out of the race. And most importantly, black voters of all stripes, a group of 700 women last week penned a letter. There was a group of prominent black men who sent a letter this week basically saying to Biden, look, if you do not pick a black woman for your running mate, you are not going to win this election. So he is very much trying to ride a wave that started for him when he won the victory in South Carolina's primary. I was in that state. And at that time, there were still a bunch of Democrats in the race. But Black voters said to me, look, the only person we think who has the gravitas to possibly beat Donald Trump is Joe Biden. He is an elder statesman. We trust him. He worked with President Obama. Therefore, we are going to vote for him. Not everybody thinks that he is the best choice. But they thought and are still saying that he is the best chance to defeat President Trump.
0: Well, he's a presumptive nominee now, and uh, we know what happened when, when people made that decision last time, that they didn't have the the favourite candidate uh, in a lot of people's eyes, what ended up happening in 2016. Some discussion, Allison, about what happens if Joe Biden does become president. Will he run again in 2024? And does the decision to choose Harris give us any hint on those fronts?
9: Well, what's interesting is that that was a talking point almost immediately after the after his choice was announced. The Republican National Committee came out with a statement basically saying, uh, quote, a hiding, diminished, and incoherent Joe Biden didn't just set, select a vice presidential candidate. He chose the person who would actually be in charge the next four years if he is somehow able to win conservatives have been all over twitter and some republicans on social media basically saying not only will she run the white house if they get in then she will be his successor he hasn't said that but on the other hand he's 77 years old so you don't know if he's will if he's going to be able to run again if he wins but the point is he's putting a younger person next to him a lot of voters i talked to said okay we like joe biden he's 77 years old though so he needs somebody younger so that there is some form of succession or somebody who could be a younger voice and say okay you're the folksy, folksy spokesman guy but here's what regular people are thinking kamala is 55 years old she's not 32 but she's 55 so she has some experience and i've been hearing from voters that they think this is it." A- the very least an interesting choice.
1: A lot of people getting ahead will say, well, we're talking about 2024 when we haven't even gotten, been through 2020. So before we let you go, Allison, what is next as this campaign heats up? Do we have dates for debates? Are we going to see a bit more of this? Because it's an unusual campaign year with COVID-19.
9: It is a very unusual campaign year, and the fact that he had to ask her to do this over Zoom was pretty interesting. The two of them are doing an appearance at a high school in Delaware today, and then they're going to sit down for an online fundraiser. The thing is that they're trying to pull together the same kind of campaign that put Barack Obama into the presidency. You know, I mean, it's a multicultural campaign. It's a multiracial campaign. It's a multi-age campaign. They're trying to put together that same kind of thing in hopes of defeating President Trump, who, of course, immediately came out yesterday he spoke right after this announcement he kind of called harris the kind of opponent that everyone dreams of and earlier in the day he kind of insulted he said that men in fact were insulted by joe biden's decision to select a woman as his running mate because he said it roped him off into quote a certain group of people so this whole thing is just going to be a hot mess
0: Allison Keyes, we appreciate the insight and the look at this. Uh, CBS News, we look forward to catching up with you again as we head towards the presidential election in November. Thank you. Absolutely. So there you go. Uh, so we're not the only ones thinking from afar, no. looking at this and going, "Boy, is there more to this selection?" Obviously, uh, political decisions have politics behind them, Loren. But this notion that Kamala Harris could be uh, Joe Biden's successor in a lot of people's eyes is starting to hold some water in my mind. It's
1: such a different system south of the border, and that's stating the obvious. I know. But the whole concept of the vice president and and what that means and how that can shape a campaign, how it can shape future campaigns, what it says about person running for president and then the person behind you it's it's such a different world down there and so I know there was a lot of people who were thrilled with this election yesterday about what that could mean about representation in the White House and the importance of that but we still have to get through this campaign and it's very rare you have to go back to it was 1990 to have a one-term president so the you know even just the the odds of Trump losing this campaign despite this tumultuous year are still low and so biden has a lot of work to do if the democrats want to see some success in the white house so you don't you don't see one-term presidents very often so the fact that we're even talking about not just him winning but moving ahead to 2024
0: in that case we're talking about two one-term presidents in succession should which trump would, lose would, yeah. yes would be which would be even more unusual <laughs>